So I'm going to read our text for us today, and that's from Luke chapter 16, verses 1 through 13. He also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do so that when I'm removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So, summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world and more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Thank you, Mike. Hello, guys. Good to be with you tonight. Uh, is this on? Hear me? Oh, there we go. Hey. Uh, if you could please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16 is, is where we are this evening. If you haven't opened there already, I encourage you to do that. Uh, we're coming to what is quite uh, unanimously thought of as the most difficult parable uh, that Jesus has ever told. So um, I realized this week that I make the preaching calendar and I plan my vacations very poorly. You know, I could have easily gotten out of this one, but um, I don't know what my problem is. But uh, seriously, it is difficult. But um, at the heart of the passage, Jesus is pressing on this very question. Why do you do what you do? Why do you do what you do? What is it that actually drives you in your life? I'm not sure if you've been watching the Olympics. I love the Olympics. Um, what strikes me every time that I watch the Olympics is, is I think about how these athletes train and think about these moments for years and years and years and years. So, I mean, just think about these athletes that uh, for however long it is, they wake up every day and the food they eat is in light of hopefully making it to that big stage right, qualifying to get to that point, that the, the exercising that they do, you know, all the training that goes into their lives is done in light of hopefully getting to that, that moment. I mean, I was even looking and hearing the story of Kenny Harrison, uh, who's a 100-meter hurdle uh, runner, uh, who's going to be running in the 100-meter hurdles tonight for gold. Um, I, I watched her run yesterday morning, and uh, this girl cha- trained for four years to go and represent America 
in the Rio Olympics, but got sixth somehow when she went out for qualifiers, even though she was like one of the best in the world. And so think about it. This girl has been training for nine, if not way longer than that, years. And if you were to ask her, what drives you? Why do you do what you do? If you were to ask her that tonight when she tries to win gold, she would probably say, well, it's this. It's getting to this moment. Every day of my life, I think about this. This is how you get here. And the same is true for us, right? Not on an athletic level, but we, we kind of do certain things for certain reasons. So why, why do you do what you do? What drives you, right? Challengingly, Jesus gives us this sort of litmus test of what it is that we do with our resources and how that actually reveals the answer to that. That what it is that we do with our resources, our money, our possessions, even our time, that reveals to us what it is that drives us. Uh, So this is Jesus' main point. His point is this, how you spend your resources, you guys, it reveals who your God is. And there's a day coming when the true God is going to come back and he is going to give an accounting. And it's actually true followers of Jesus who will have been living with that day in mind. That's the point he's trying to get across here. It's a challenging passage, I mean, because who, who likes to talk about money, right? It's like the one thing you can't talk about with people, right? You, you, there's certain that you can't say, who'd you vote for, right? I mean, that's one thing you can't do. That would be really awkward really fast. Um, you know, you, you can't do certain things. One of those is talk about money. You can't go up to people and say, how much money do you have in your bank account? And what do you do with it, right? Those are awkward things to say, but Jesus isn't uncomfortable talking about these things. He talks about them a lot. In fact, Luke has brought this up many times in his gospel account. He's highlighted the role of money throughout his gospel. He saw it, we saw it last week in the prodigal son. We're going to see it next week, and we're going to see it even the following week in the rich man in Lazarus. But here's what we see. We see the parable, the dishonest manager in verses 1 through 8, and then we're going to see this test. What is this whole thing about in verses 9 through 12? So we see this great crisis and this revealing test for us. So let's, let's look at this together, this great crisis in verses 1 through 8 that Jesus is, is essentially warning us about. He says, He also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. He called him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, the words mammon, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. I think a helpful way to kind of read through parables, and especially one like this tonight, is, um, is this. I want you to imagine that you're making a film. You're making a movie. You're the director of the movie, and Luke 16 is your script. 
Okay, Luke 16 is your script. Uh, we see in verses 1 through 2 a scene that maybe you would think is a familiar scene uh, in other movies and other things that you uh, might imagine. So you imagine this big office place, this luxurious, large building. You know, maybe there's a guy who's the manager. He's a big-time manager. He has maybe a corner office with a big desk. He's the top manager, and he is about to get fired. I mean, this guy has real authority, okay? He's got real authority when it comes to his boss's wealth and possessions. He has the real freedom to act, and he has real responsibility, right? He gets to negotiate his own contracts with his clients, and he's been accused of squandering his master's possessions, his boss's wealth. That's what he's accused of. So just imagine that you're filming this scene, verses 1 through 2, right? The boss is meeting with this guy, right? And you could see the stress coming over the manager's face as he's realizing where this meeting is headed, right? The implication is that he's had his hand in the till, right? right? He's been skimming money off the top of transactions and stealing the wealth of his boss. He's been mismanaging it, to say the least. And although we don't know all the details, right, the boss tells him to essentially clean out your desk, and we're going to schedule an exit interview with you by the end of the day, right? And at the end of the day, we're going to settle all the accounts. You're going to turn in your book. You're going to turn in your ledgers, that sort of thing. All right, so, so what would you do at this point with your actor who's getting fired, right, by the end of the day? Well, maybe you would follow him outside. You'd have him leave the building or something. He'd go down to a pub or something like that. He's he slides up to the bar, you know, there to, to grab a drink, you know, because his life just basically fell apart. But he, Luke wants you to know in verse 2, what does he do? He's thinking to himself. And what is he thinking to himself? He's thinking, well, I'm probably not going to get another job like this job. This is a pretty good job. I can't go out there and, and get another one that's quite this good, and especially because now I have this big blemish on my resume. I'm going to apply for another job, maybe that's even of equal value or pay or something like that, and then they're going to get some point in the interview, and they're going to say, well, why did you leave your last job, right? And so this is going to probably come up. So what does he, what does he do? Verse 3, he starts thinking about maybe construction jobs, and basically he says, I'm a little pudgy, right? All I've done is like a bunch of office work my whole life, only a bunch of white collar work. I don't even have calluses on my hands, like I can't do that kind of stuff. And so he thinks about the alternative, right? Which is what? He says, begging. Well, I don't want to beg, right? I don't want to go out to the corner and beg for money. I mean, that would be so much shame in my life. Like people would maybe walk by and go, isn't that the guy who used to like manage all that wealth? And now he's on the corner begging? I mean, these are, these are not good options. And so suddenly he has one of those moments where if you've ever watched, you know, cartoons or something like that, especially older cartoons, you get to the point uh, where that light bulb goes on over the head, right? The ding, you know, appears, maybe Roadrunner, Coyote kind of stuff. You guys know that was, I used to watch that. It was great. Okay. Classic. But, you know, nonetheless, like this guy has the light bulb come on over his head. What's the ding? The ding is in verse four, right? What does he decide to do? He knows he's going to lose his job. He's going to lose his place in his master's house. So he figures out a way to cover his tail and live a decent life. So we have scene three now, right? Scene three, verse five, we have a massive sort of adrenaline flow. You have to see this. He's only got a few hours left. And whatever he's going to do has to be accomplished in the next few hours. And what he does in the next few hours is going to affect the rest of his life. 
Right? So he starts looking through his phone, like the contacts in his phone. He, he's contacting all of his boss's debtors, those who have outstanding bills to pay. And so his plan is to go out and have them modify their debt that they owe his boss for something way less than what they actually owe. But then look down in verses 5 through 7. What does it say? Summoning his master's debtors one by one, he says to the first, how much do you owe my master? hundred measures of oil. Take your bill, sit down quickly, write 50. He said to another, and how much do you owe? He said a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. Right? What, what Jesus wants to know here is there's not just mainly two people he's talking about. This is indicative of probably what was going on with a lot of other people that owed money. And so they have these debts. And these debts are land rents, basically is what it is. They owe oil, they owe wheat, and they owe a lot of it. And this is the way it worked back then. Whatever you grew was what you would use to pay things. That was the currency you would use. So if you make oil by growing olive trees, you would pay in oil. Right? If you raise wheat, you would pay in wheat. It's like settlers of Catan, basically, right? Right, this is a really large olive grove, though, that Jesus is describing here. Right, the wheat is actually 200 acres of wheat, which is 20 times the size of an average family plot in those days. So this is a lot of money here. So notice how he's using his final hours before the company says, get out of here, you're fired. He goes out and he shows astonishing generosity to his business associates. He says, bring the contract documents you have, bring the outstanding bills you have, let's rewrite them. Let's rewrite them. And then we get to scene four, which is verse eight. It's the climax. Where are we? We're back in the office, right? It's the boss with his manager. He's settling the books with his boss, and the boss becomes aware of what the manager's done. The debts are coming in, and they are way, way, way less than, than what they should be. The land should yield far more in annual rents than this. So just imagine the reaction of the boss here. Again, imagine you're the director, right? right what camera angle are you going to use here? Like, what are you going to do here in verse 8? What does he say? The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. He commends him for his shrewdness. To act shrewdly literally in Greek just means the, having cleverness and self-preservation. So that's what he commends him for. He doesn't say, hey, great job, right? He doesn't say, you sleazy guy. He's like, wow, you got me, right? We I mean, just think about this scene. I mean, what tone of voice are you going to use here? I mean, would you have him kind of walk over to the window and look out the window and kind of gather himself and turn around and then kind of tell it to the guy? I mean, what's, what's happening here? This is an intense scene. He's just swindled his boss right from under his nose in a matter of hours after being fired for already cheating him. He's pulled it off. And now he's got this whole list of phone numbers with all these people that he just did a favor to and it's going to pay off for him. So now he can go home at the end of the day and he could say to his wife, he could say, hey babe, you know, I got fired today, but don't worry, I got some really good contacts. Right? Well, what's the lesson here? Why is Jesus telling this parable? Well, verse 8, what does it say? The sons of this world are far more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. I mean, what are you to make of this? I'll be honest, for years I've kind of wondered at this statement. Is Jesus uh, commending 
criminal activity here? Is that what he's doing? I mean, what is he saying? How do we get any spiritual benefit from a shady business ethics, right? Well, Jesus is using a shady character here to teach us something. He's saying we can learn something from this man. Well, what do we learn? The quality Jesus wants us to take away from this is the man's shrewdness. That much is clear. That we were meant to learn from the way that this man prepares himself before the final reality of the crisis hits. He prepares himself. What does he do? Well, he doesn't go and wallow. He doesn't do that when he finds out what's going to happen. He's thinking. He doesn't try to spend his last hours uploading a a virus to the network server or something, you know, just taking everybody out with him or something on his way out. He doesn't just go out and numb himself. He's used the time that his boss gave him. He's used the position that he had in the final hours that he had it, and he saw the crisis coming, right? That's what we see here in this man. Well, what's the crisis? Look at at the owner in verse 2. What does he say? What's this I hear about you? What's this I hear about you? Right? Give an account of your management because you cannot be a manager any longer. That's the crisis, isn't it? What's this I hear about you? That's the crisis. The story, you guys, is preparing us to consider how one day, one day, we will all meet the master, the master, and we will have to go through our accounts with him. Right, this story falls completely flat. It actually doesn't make any sense at all unless you know and unless you believe that God will ask you this very question. He, he will one day ask me, and he will one day ask you to give an account. The Bible tells us that nothing in creation is hidden. Everything is laid bare before God. There is no secrets with him. Everything that is said in the dark, in the secret, it will be proclaimed on the mountaintops. Whatever is done in the dark, it will be exposed in the light. What this is telling us is that this day is going to come, and it's a day of accounting. I know some people, we might push back on this idea, this idea of a judgment day. I mean, we feel like this is pretty old school, traditional, just a way that maybe people in the past uh, spoke about things so they could control people's behavior or something like that. People might think that way this, these kinds of days. They might think, oh, this is an old way of viewing the world. But, but think about it. Even though if you cringe at this idea that there is a judgment day and it's coming, think about it. Uh, it it's be, uh, if we cringe at this as if it's bad news, we aren't thinking about it very clearly, actually. This is actually really good news in a world of bad news. Right, when we hear of horrible, bad news things happening in the world, right, All, a bunch of things, we're, we're glad for a day like this. When we hear of, of children being abused, people trafficked, uh, racial slurs being hurled out at people, uh, the millions of aborted babies, uh, rape, abusive husbands, people who've manipulated other people to get to the means of their own end, right? We are, we are grateful that there will be a day of accounting. Right? Judgment is a good thing, but the hard thing is, is that we will all face it. Even if you and I think that we are better than others 
There are things even in our hearts, in the darkness, in the recesses of our place, secret, secret things that we don't want to have to account for. What have we done with our master's things, right? right? God has set a day when he will judge. And how do you and I know that? Well, the Bible tells us that, that the proof that he has given that this is going to happen, the proof of that is that he has raised Jesus from the dead. The resurrection is the proof that there will be a final accounting. Because if Jesus has been raised from the dead, if you're a follower of Jesus or if you're looking for that hope in the world, that is our greatest hope, that Jesus has been raised from the dead, that he has conquered sin, death, and hell, and that one day when we die, we will rise with him. But when everybody rises on that last day, this is also serving as a great warning. Because when we rise, we will give an accounting. Hebrews 9, John 5, many places talk about these things. So this is what Jesus is saying. He's saying, what difference would it make in your life if you really believed in the coming accounting? Like, what difference would that make? It should make the same kind of difference I would make for an athlete trying to make it to the Olympics, thinking about that day. What difference would it make if I knew that my accounts were going to be examined and there was nothing I could do about it, right? I counted, I've worked 16 jobs before I entered into pastoral ministry. So it was like before the age of 24, something like that. Not proud of it, okay? My wife makes fun of me for it. Random jobs, you know, Taco John's. He has no Taco John's. Great place, okay? Places like Coca-Cola and Blockbuster, all, this, all these wonderful places, right? I could tell you most of those places were fun places to work. Uh, but you know, I want to know when it wasn't fun, all, all those kind of jobs. It was never fun when we caught wind that our district manager was going to be coming by, you know, to visit the store and basically see how things are going, right? Because all of a sudden, if you ever worked a job like this at all, things get quite stressful, don't they? Why? Because you're all like, man, I got to get things in order around here, right? If I want to keep my job, right, which you're not as worried about it, but your boss is worried about it, right? I mean, we, we get the feelings of this sort of stress. We begin to function at work very differently. But even put it another way, even in the way of how this is going here, play back the film that we just walked through, that we just made earlier. Again, you're making a film of this manager. Slow it down again for verse or scene three, verses five through seven. Look there, do you see the scene where the manager's giving out discounts of these bills? Each bill is looked at, a new one is created at a massive discount, and the old bill is shredded, right? Each bill is looked at, there's a massive discount, and what is he doing here? He's focused on buying himself favors before his big exit interview. He's ingratiating himself to his clients in the hopes that they will help him out in the future. It's the old, I'll scratch your back if you scratch mine sort of thing, right? Well, what's his demeanor? What's his attitude here? What do you see? Well, he's absolutely focused on what he needs to do, he, knowing the amount of time that he has left. Now, here's the issue. Play back this scene where he's giving out discounts that he shouldn't be giving, and now compare it to yourself in action in light of the judgment to come. If you believe Jesus' resurrection and second coming, we will have to give an accounting. If you believe that, imagine yourself in comparison to this man. How do you live in light of the exit interview that's coming? Slow down and look at yourself. 
What makes you do what you do? What's driving you? What's, what's motivating you in the film about your life? Right? Let, let's stop looking at this guy and, and let's look at ourselves. Right? Where's our focus? What does your findings reveal about you? Well, that's where Jesus ends up. Verses 9 through 12, what does he say? I'll tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. This is the big test, right? And what do tests do? They reveal what is already in us, right? Maybe in school it reveals what you already know. This is a test that reveals what it is that you've actually been living for, and even more so when we get to verse 13, right? But, the, but, the, but before we get there, Jesus walks us through our spending, and this is very uh, revelatory. The word mammon begins to come up a lot here, which is a word that just means possessions. It includes money. It includes everything that we own materially. We see that word in verse 9. We see it twice in verse 11, and we see it in verse 13. And this word mammon is just an Aramaic term uh, that, that uses, uh, that talks about money and possessions, that, that people basically, you have to remember, they didn't just have a bunch of wads of cash walking around with, right? Again, they had oil, they had wheat, things like that. But look at this verse 9, like what does verse 9 mean? Right? How do you read it? At first, this is probably the most confusing verse in the entire passage. It seems like a contradiction, doesn't it? I mean, who is they, right? Who are the friends when you look at verse 9? Make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings, right? We would think based on the words unrighteous wealth that these friends are worldly people. We think unrighteous wealth would be some sort of evil, sort of sinful sort of thing that we're actually doing here, but that's not the case. And we know this from the evaluations and the contrast given down in verse 11. Look at verse 11. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? Now we kind of mistake some things here in verses 10 through 12. These are not promises or anything like that. These aren't telling you, hey, if you're faithful in this, God is going to give you this. No, these are just contrasts, right? These are past, you know, behavior is best predictive of what you're going to do in the future kind of stuff here. But look in verse Uh, 11, right? We see the unrighteous wealth there as well. So this is not a reference to two different kinds of riches in this world. This is a reference about possessions in this world, unrighteous wealth, and in the world to come, true wealth, eternal dwellings, true riches, right? That's, That's how Jesus is using the word unrighteous here, not as a moral statement, but as a temporary one. He's contrasting with what the shrewd manager has actually done. He figured out how to have clients turn into friends and welcome him in once he had to settle his accounts. So what Jesus is saying then in verse 9 is that the children of light, right? so believers, true followers of Jesus, should so conduct our lives 
that when this world comes to a close for us and its wealth comes to an end, God and all the redeemed will welcome us in to God's presence. So Jesus then in verses 10 through 12, he's giving these sort of contrasts, right, of that past behavior predictive of the the future kind of stuff. And he's, he's asking us to consider how are we using the things that we're using? Again, these are not promises. These are logical, basic reasoning evaluation statements, right? What do you do with what you have reveals who your God is, is what Jesus says. Right? That's his main point there in verse 13. Basically, he's asking, who is your God? You can't serve both. At some point, you will have to choose, right? You could say, for example, you have two favorite sports teams, but until those teams play each other, right, when they play each other, you realize I have to choose, right? You can't have them both be your favorite at the moment, right? You you can't have two girlfriends, okay? You just shouldn't in general, okay? If you do, you're going to lose them both, okay? Just letting you know right now, okay? But even so, at some point, you will have to choose, Right? You can't even have two favorite restaurants because what? At some moment, you're going to get hungry and you need to go eat. Right? You have to choose. Right? If that's true with sports and restaurants and everything, how much more than with God and our resources? Right? If I make my God to be the God of my comfort in this world, right? if, if I make my God I will do whatever it takes to seek out pleasure in this world, power in this world. If my God is having control in this world, safety and security in this world, approval from other people in this world, then what will I do? I will spend my time, my money, and most, if not all, I have to get things that feed that and to protect it with all I have. That's what I will do. But if my God is my God and I find ultimate comfort in his presence, if I find ultimate pleasure in his life and pleasing him, if I find rest knowing that he has all power, if I find so much freedom in knowing that he is sovereign, that he is in control, if I know that I am secure in Christ and no one can snatch me out of his hand and that safety is just a facade, if I know that he approves of me and that approval is what matters most to me, then I will spend everything I have in this world to his end. That's what I'll do. That's what Jesus is saying. What's the context for this parable, you guys? It's the prodigal son. What did he want to do? We just looked at this last week. He wanted to be free from his father and pursue pleasure. And then just look in verse 14. The the next scene is the Pharisees who, even though Jesus was speaking to his disciples, they're overhearing, right, what he's saying here. And it says the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things and ridiculed them. They were lovers of money. And so they would not follow Jesus. They wouldn't listen to him. Then in two weeks, we're going to see the rich man who was self-seeking, and he ends up in hell. So we see the prodigal, the Pharisees, the rich man seduced by money. Money loves to be master. So what the Bible is doing is saying, look at them. And then look at you. Look at you. 
What about you? Who is your master? Who is your master? I once heard Tim Keller say, and I've never forgotten, he says, money flows effortlessly to that which is its God. Man, it's so true. It just flows effortlessly. That's what I'm after. It doesn't even hurt. See, there is a day coming. What this parable is saying is that ultimately we will find out who our God is on that day. There's a day when God will say, what's this I hear about you? Give an account. And it's staggering because you and I, if you're anything like me, we can go days and days without even thinking about this day. Uh, Charles Spurgeon once said of somebody, he said, um, Anthony Ashley Cooper is the best man that ever lived. Um, Spurgeon's probably one of my most uh, favorite church history figures. And so when I read that he had said, Anthony Ashley Cooper is the best man that ever lived, I was like, I got to know who this guy is. And reading about Anthony Ashley Cooper is fascinating. Uh, He's a man who lived in the 1800s in England, and um, he was a, a believer and he worked really hard at social reforms. Uh, primarily, he focused on child labor and how all these kids were being forced to work as chimney sweeps and in coal factories and things like this. They were horribly mistreated. They worked under horrible conditions that often resulted in their abuse and in really horrible uh, health conditions for their lives. But he changed all that. Uh, he changed other things called the lunacy laws that severely mistreated people with mental disorders who were just basically locked away and horribly um, abused because of their conditions. He, he changed a lot of that. He did a lot of work to help change and help the poor get educated. And what he did is actually really hard to describe. You have to like really read about his life to get the full weight of the impact that he made in England, especially in London. But a scene should suffice in part because when he died, the poor just lined the streets in London. Just lined the streets in London in his honor. I say all this because at one point in his life, people asked him the reason for why he lived the way that he lived. This is what he said. He said, in the last 40 years, I don't think I've passed a single waking hour without bringing to mind the second coming of our Lord. It influenced every hour. He he understood verse 9. You might say that Cooper lived for the line, not the dot. You know that old saying, right? If we drew a line all the way around this room so it was really thick and visible, right? We said that line represents eternity. And then I took a Sharpie pen and I walked over to that line and I just drew a dot on it. And I said that dot represents my life. From birth to death, that's, that's my life. He lived for the line. And the problem is most of us live for the dot. I mean, if we're honest, uh, we, we live this way. We, we often live in ways that don't make sense. Right? When we factor in eternity. And the thought that Jesus is actually coming back and he's going to go, what is this I hear about you? I mean, it's almost like we live, I was thinking about this week, it's like if we lived and and all of a sudden we found out we were going to be moving to Iceland, right? Have you seen the pictures? It looks amazing. Iceland, glorious, okay? I would love to go there someday. Imagine we were going to be moving to Iceland, you were, not together, just you, okay? By yourself, right? One week, okay? 
you sold everything. But the week before you leave, you, you drive over and you get uh, into a hotel over at PDX. You're there for a week. Let's just say that whole week you begin going down to Ikea, you start buying all this stuff, right? You go buy all these nice paintings in Portland, somewhere you buy a really nice new car, all this electronics, like all these different things, right? You just begin to load up your hotel room with all these things, right? You even open a storage unit, right? You put stuff in there too, okay? And then the week ends and you get on the plane and you take off, you leave it all behind, right? You would say, why did you do that? That doesn't even make sense, right? You knew you were going to Iceland, right? That's often, though, how I know I live, how you live, and that's exactly what Jesus is pointing out here. Guys, what, what needs to be clear is that Jesus is not saying that giving away money or being generous with my resources and time is going to buy me into heaven, as if I'm going to appear before him on that day, and he's going to go, well, not enough. Right? That's not the idea at all. We just read the prodigal son story last week that shows us how Jesus said he came to seek and save the lost. Right? We see the son coming home, not even having to clean himself up, but Jesus embraces him and kisses him. Right? The father does this. Right? We know that through the rest of Scripture, and especially through the rest of the Gospel of Luke, that our salvation comes at the cost to Jesus himself, not our own. The only thing that I bring to my own salvation is my sin. Right? Jesus brings everything, the grace, the blood, the forgiveness, right? He's the one who does it all. I bring nothing to my conversion in that way. Right? Jesus brings his righteousness, his grace. We know from Romans that eternal life is a gift. You can't pay your way. Jesus is the way. You can't buy your way in. We know this. That's not what this is saying. But Jesus is saying that there is a time coming when, like the shrewd manager, our time and money and resources be gone. And on that day, what will happen is God will say, let's give an account. He's almost saying, I want to interview your schedule. I want to interview your bank account. Maybe we'll find your God. When I was in college, I remember I was dating my now wife, Elizabeth, and I, was, I knew I was pretty low on funds. But it was before smartphones, so I, couldn't, I didn't check before I went on the date. And so I remember embarrassingly being on the date, being like, I need to go to the bathroom or something. And I called my best friend, being like, hey, can you check my bank account just to make sure I'm not getting into an awkward situation here and can't pay the bill, you know? And he uh, opens up my uh, Wells Fargo account, you know, and he, he looks at my, he's like, you're good, you know? And uh, I was like, great, thanks. The next day I see him, he's like, hey, how, how was the date? I was like, oh, it was great, that kind of thing. He's like, man, dude, I was looking at your account looking through all the stuff, and he's like, it was just hilarious. It was Starbucks, Starbucks, iTunes, iTunes, Starbucks, iTunes. He just kept going on and on about all these different things. This is before streaming services. You had to buy your own music, you know, if you want to listen to anything, basically. And he's like, he, he and we were just laughing, and I was nervously laughing, and he goes, if I doubted before, now I know what you care about, right? I know what to get you for your birthday, that kind of thing. There's nothing wrong with Starbucks or iTunes, right? Nothing at all, right? But it was revelatory for me. Yeah, what does that say? Would my time and bank account activity reveal that I really lived in light of Jesus' return? Right? Did I really live like I was a steward entrusted with the gospel and that everything that I have has been given to me? Would it reveal that I spent my life for the preaching of the gospel around the world 
the helping of the poor and marginalized, all the things that Luke has been showing us time and time again throughout his gospel and sending out his people to do. What evidence does my life give? Does it reveal that the future has any bearing on my present? Maybe you are sitting here tonight and you're, you're really actually encouraged. You're like, wow, I've seen God grow my life in so many ways. I, I feel so encouraged because um, I, I would never have cared about that. And now I, I feel like God's doing this in my life and, and I'm more generous in this way. I'm pursuing that living for the line sort of idea. And I would say to you, praise God for that. Praise God for that. I know so many of you that as I get to interact with you, I'm constantly blown away and inspired by how you live for the line, like so many of you. And that's what we want to be as a church. We want to be a church that lives for the line, right? We want to live for the line. But I would say to us, let's ask God for more of that. We never want to hear and even conclude those sorts of things and feel a sense of pride like, yeah, but they need to start living for the line. You know, that kind of idea. No, ask God for more humility that he would continue to work in and through you in these ways. But I would also say maybe you are sitting here tonight and you're super discouraged because you look at your life and you're like, man, if I really examined these things, it would not reveal that God is my God. I I wouldn't reveal that I'm a steward, but I see myself as an owner. I'm living for the dot. I would just encourage you tonight, come to Jesus and ask for forgiveness. He promises that he will never cast out any who come to him. Just come home to him. This is the litmus test, and it reveals who our God is. That's why I've loved uh, this snippet from a letter I gravitated towards years ago. It was back when the early church was, was first being formed, and there was a Caesar named Caesar Hadrian who heard about these people who were following Jesus. And as he heard about them, he like, didn't know what to think about them. He didn't know if they were a threat to his rule, all these different things. And so he sent out a guy named Aristides to kind of investigate what's going on. I want you to find out. And so Aristides went out and, and kind of sought out different churches, different Christians to see what they were doing. And this is what he wrote back in response to what he had seen. He said, they love one another. And he who has gives to him who has not without boasting. And when they see a stranger, they take him into their own homes and rejoice over him as a very brother. And if there's any among them that is uh, any that is poor and needy, if they have no spare food, they fast two or three days in order to supply to the needy their lack of food. Such, O king, is their manner of life, and verily, this is a new people. There is something divine in the midst of them. These are people living for the line. There are people that are like, Jesus has given me everything I have, and he's coming back. I get to be with him in eternal dwellings. Guys, if our God is the God who deserves all worship, owns everything, yet his generosity he gave what was most costly to him, his only son, so that we could be free from the rat race of living for the dot and instead live for the line of true wealth, that'll make us into a certain kind of people. So what do we believe? 
What do you believe? Jesus is saying to us, one day we'll find out. Let's pray. Father, as we come to a passage that uh, is at times confusing, easily to say difficult to hear, uh, Lord, your word uh, just cuts us. You draw the line where we want to ride the fence. And I pray uh, tonight, God, as your people, um, we would hear your word and take serious evaluation of our lives. And we would once again, Lord, entrust ourselves to you that you are the one that we are made for. And that anything you call us into is for our good and leads us to freedom in life. Lord, I pray, Lord Jesus, that um, our lives would reflect you and your generosity in the ways that you lived. How would you teach us how to do that? Would you once again um, call us back to yourself and may we experience your grace and turn around and live for the things that you've freed us to live for? Lord, I pray that all of us would, would come to you tonight where we're at, knowing that you receive us. And Lord, as we come to you and behold your glory, we pray that we would never be the same again. Lord, we love you, God. We thank you for your word. In Christ's name we pray these things. Amen.